This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. I'm very professional. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm trying to make Jessica yell and laugh. Hi, Jessica. Hi, <laughs> you won I won. Already. I won. <laughs> uh, Jessica's bio, former CNN White House correspondent. Prior to that, ABC. Prior to that, MSNBC. You went to Harvard. You're very fancy. Oh. Uh, you've written a book, mm. even fancier, Savage News. And you're doing something cool on Instagram. Thank you for talk saying about all so. of that. Yeah. Should we talk about Instagram first? We just go there. Okay. Since we're there, talk about the book for sure. I mean, sure. it's the new modern thing, right? So you've done all these very um, impressive television journalism tenures. Is that the wrong word? It works. You've been on TV a lot. <laughs> and now, you are, now you're doing a news project on Instagram. Yes. What are you doing and why are you doing it on Instagram? So... I started this newscast on Instagram that is under my name. You can find it at Jessica Yellen. I call it news, not noise. Because I was in the news for 17 years, more or less, traditional news. And I just have this feeling that a lot of what you're getting from traditional news is uh, a lot of noise. It's hard to tell if you're just a regular person what's a mountain and what's a molehill. And my job in in this capacity now is to say, here is what's news. This is the mountain. Over here— those are molehills. So this, this started off as your personal Instagram account and has become a news project for you where you're summarizing the news. Yeah. So it started, I mean, it was my Instagram account like a year ago. I posted, you know, my cappuccino when it had a picture of Bruce Jenner's face drawn in the latte, right? Like just random Instagram stuff. And then— It's a good latte. <laughs> it was impressive, I must say. I mean, it was Instagram worthy. Then I wrote the book, and I wanted people to understand a little bit what it's like to be— like I say, on the bright side of the camera lens. And then I decided, what's the way to address what I think are some of the challenges and issues in broadcast Because your book, in which we'll talk about, is a critique. It's a satire, it's funny, <laughs> and, and it's gossipy, it's good. But it's a critique of news. <laughs> it's all of, of the above. Of TV yeah. news. Yeah. And I wanted to find a way to address this audience that I think wants information told differently. I'm from L.A., so I went home. I, le- I worked at the, covered the White House. I went home. I went and did the L.A. thing where I met with producers and talked to, what do they call it, unscripted television people. You had some generals. General, exactly. <laughs> They're amazing because all they do is meet to take more meetings, to take another mm-hmm. meeting, to eventually make a decision. It's so— You drink a lot of water. Contrary to how we do things in news. Anyway, so— I took all these generals talking about there's another way to do news and was sort of laughed out of the room every time. Nobody wants news without a panic attack. No one wants calm news. There isn't a market for that. So I was thought, I better test myself and see if I even know how to do it. And I just started doing videos on Instagram. And it's you. It's it's sort of classic Instagram selfie, but you're not talking about your makeup or anything else. You're talking about Brett Kavanaugh. Exactly. And the idea is to say, is to quickly distill what truly matters in the story to understand the most relevant facts and either where it's going or why it matters to you. The idea is to give busy people or people who are interested but turned off by the news another alternative. And I think of it as an on-ramp for people. I mean, I've done a lot of social science research, read the academic studies, et cetera, that shows there's this huge audience that skews female, but it's young men too who want, they find the tone and the framing of news to be too negative. They don't like the way news is delivered, whether it's through traditional TV or cable or newspapers or websites. Exactly. Not for them. Exactly. And, and you know, the conventional wisdom is, oh, they just don't like TV or they don't like the, you know, the way everything's so highly produced. My insight is they also don't like the tone and framing of it, how negative it is um, and how combative it is and how outrage-filled. And so can you— 
invert that and do it differently and still get an audience. And so some of these are videos, and now you've done, now you're doing some text-only posts. And they're, it's, it's, it's a very straightforward thing. It's a, oh, why didn't I think of that <laughs> thing? Or are we sure 20 other people aren't doing a version of this? <laughs> right. I mean, what I found is in Instagram, there weren't a lot of people yeah. doing the news. Because um, it's pictures it, right. and visual, and the, the assumption is the audience is not there for news. But what I found is that they are. So it grew from, I had like 700 followers to begin with, and it grew to 130,000, 100% organic. I haven't spent a penny. You got a big push from Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer pushed it out. I mean, amazing. She announced her pregnancy on my Instagram newsfeed. Good get. Uh Uh-huh. She's been very generous. Um, But also Jessica Seinfeld, who has an audience that's women who cook, and they want to, you know, they don't have a news source, right? A lot of them. Or um, there have been other celebrities, Christy Brinkley, a whole bunch of people have helped push it out. And it gets you an audience of people who might be online looking at fashion or um, cooking or other, you know, kids things. Yeah. And they want a way to engage with the news that doesn't want a little feel- dose of news yeah. that sort of comes to them. And then so your idea is, is it's mostly you're assuming you've got a, a female audience? Because you're on Instagram, or do you think you're actively seeking out that audience? It's sort of, the people who've pushed it out are women who have women followers, so it's heavily skews female. But the research shows that women over 35 want this kind of news, and millennials of both genders. Yeah. So I'm sure you get this a lot, but the the obvious thing that I think about when I hear hear about your project and see it is, oh, this is, there's there's the skim. We've had those founders on this podcast before. They're doing a version of this. And also, there's lots of people who are aggregating news, who are explaining the news, like coworkers next door at Vox.com. That's the premise of the website. So there's lots of folks who are somehow trying to put news in context for people who don't think they're getting it from traditional sources. A hundred percent. And I think they all do it beautifully. And I am a huge consumer of Vox. I love what they do. And I am a daily reader of the skim. I'm video first. So I'm talking to you. Like Fox, I'm a reporter. So my stuff is sourced. And what I try to do that's slightly different is crunch it for you so that it's succinct and analytical. There's a original reporting part. There's a analysis part. And then it's personalized because you're talking to a human in a way. And I think that's part of what makes this connection real for people, that they see me. So you've got an audience. You're building an audience quickly. It's on Instagram. It's free. I didn't pay for it. I didn't notice any sponsors. I assume at some point you assume there's a a way to turn this into a business? Yeah, let's assume so. Yeah. Right? That would be good. (laughs) Yes. What do you think? So um, that's what I'm actively exploring now, which is what is the best way to maintain the integrity of what it is and grow the business. And the idea is to offer calm, clear, succinct news without a panic attack to an audience that wants information told clearly. And it's, you know, does it live on Instagram forever? Does it move off and go somewhere else? Is the smartest thing to, you know... Because in theory, this could be on Twitter, it could be on Facebook, you could be a video show, right. lots of different ways to do a version of this. Yes. And and for me, I just want to be true to the audience and build. I want to bring in other reporters, and I see ways to partner with existing media platforms. You know, there's no reason this is competitive with. It's an on-ramp. There is an audience that wants news. They want a way to access news. And right now, it's just you, right? There's like you're holding the phone in front of your face. You're this typing is a up funny thing. Yeah, you know, I used to be on the White House North Lawn mm-hmm. with like a whole crew yeah. and the whole fancy shebang, and now I'm on my couch at home with a camera doing a selfie, basically. Yeah, I was going to ask about that sort of the, that. Uh, I don't know, is it whiplash? Is it uh, is it dichotomy? I mean, what's the right word for for going from that sort of 
forget the White House part of it, just anything involving TV is multiple people. There's people back in New York that wherever you're doing the project, and you don't really have control in many ways. And here it's 100% control. Yes. And then I assume some other trade-offs. Which is, yeah, the 100% control is good and bad. The part I love is there are no gatekeepers. So I can tell the story the way I think the audience wants to hear it. The awful thing is there are no gatekeepers. So there's no one I can go to and say, hey, do we do it this way or that way? That's a bad idea. Don't do that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So I do miss that kind of editorial engagement, but I've created my own kitchen cabinet of other reporters, sources, people I trust that I harass all day long saying, what do you think of this story? Yeah. What do you think of that? And 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 was there a breakthrough story for you besides the uh, the Schumer pregnancy? I think Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. Because um, the audience was super engaged, and the news, the traditional news, was covering it in a specific way, which was all about the conflict, all about the outrage. And some of the learnings I've had are people want to understand the human part. And um, they want things to sort of have a landing place. I don't know how to say it except don't scream at me and then go to commercial break. Give me a place to feel okay and then end. And what I did is I'd include, you know, I know there are survivors of sexual assault in the audience and this is upsetting. If it is, you're not alone. Here's where you can go and call somebody to talk about it. And that was resonant with your audience Mm -hmm. and then built a bigger audience. Mm -hmm. A lot of media that has been created, uh, either media companies or or just coverage post-Trump is actively opposed to Trump which it should be, because I think. Uh, but it, it seems like you are sort of deliberately trying to be neutral-ish in your presentation. I love that neutral-ish. Yeah, my bias is away from conflict and outrage. So my general thesis, and, and so to finish that thought, my bias is away from conflict and outrage as opposed to right-left. I'm always trying to find the way to have the calmer take than the media landscape. I I think of myself as sitting on top of the media landscape, picking out for you what I think matters, told in a tone that I think this audience can ingest. And so I don't think of it as right-left, but I also make it, it's imperative that I always include data so the audience has a piece of information yeah. to go and talk about. So I was looking at your your summary of the bar summary of the Mueller report. <laughs> um, and it's all very common sense. Here's what Barr says. Here's what we don't know. And it's all factual and all logical and all true. And I'm sure there's a good chunk of the country, the Trump-supporting uh, part of the country, that look at that and go, this is biased, this is uh, anti-Trump, et cetera. Uh, do you concern yourself about sort of making sure that people who like Donald Trump or his affiliates, um, want to engage with you or you just say, look, I'm putting it out there and you guys could decide? I, I don't concern myself with the Trump base. Yeah. I believe that if you are embracing Donald Trump's point of view and the base's outrage, you are not hewing to facts most of the time. And so if you are fact-based, in this environment, you're going to be center right to center to left. And it's just the truth of the moment we're living in. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. It's funny that it's, not funny that it's controversial. It's sad that it's controversial. I mean, if that's controversial, you know, we need to have a conversation about what facts really are. We do. Let's have that in the next conversation. Okay. (laughs) Let's take a quick break. Back with Jessica. I'm back here with Jessica Yellen, new Instagram star, former (laughs) TV star. Um, Let's talk about TV and and sort of how you got to the White House and what made you decide to leave the White House beat. I mentioned Harvard. You went to Harvard in your fancy pants. Your dad had worked in the White House. My dad was John F. Kennedy's personal page on the floor of the Democratic Convention. He didn't go to the White House, but he was— White House adjacent. Yeah, he was an 
devotee of JFK. And growing up in my house, the the one thing we were not allowed to touch as kids were these Life magazine editions commemorating his assassination. And um, my dad died, and the first thing I said, like, everybody was deciding, what do you want to remember, Dad? Those were mine. Keeping life It's pretty grim. Yeah, Yeah, no, (laughs) I understand. (laughs) So there was this whole value system in my household, which was, you can't just do well, you have to do good. And I thought first that I was going to be in politics. But working in the White House, I decided, mm, So you're no. a White House intern, uh-huh. Clinton administration. Yes. Do I get to say Monica Lewinsky out loud? You sure may. Did, I you, did you work with her? Did you know her? I did not know her. Uh-huh. I was from where she came from, but we did not overlap. Uh-huh. So you're working as an intern at the Clinton White House, and you decide, I don't want to do this, or there's something more interesting? I noticed that in every room in the West Wing, there was one of those—remember those huge TVs? That were, that's no plasmas back in the day. There was one in every room. It hung on like clear fish wire. And there were two things that could stop a room cold. One was the president actually walking into the room physically. Or that one TV, which was tuned to CNN, the only 24-hour cable news channel at the time, reporting on the building. And I just noticed how much power those people had. And I always thought, oh, if I were doing that, I would focus on this policy thing we're working on today because I was— I'm going to go work on TV and tell them how to do this. Yeah, that this. was— Yes, I know, I know. And and, I and then and then you go from there and you do the sort of traditional route you do when you're breaking into journalism, whether it's TV or anything else, is you go to a bunch of small markets and sort of work your way up. I did. My first job in TV was in Orlando where I was a one-man band reporter. I'd carry my own camera, edit my own stuff. Well, you so know, back to where we just talked about with Instagram. Uh, exactly. Where, where, how did that Funny. experience sort of sync with what you thought TV news was going to be like? I assume you imagined it was much more glamorous at one point, and then all of a sudden you're lugging your own makeup and gear. That is part of the learning. One of the reasons I wrote this novel is I wanted young women who want to go into the business to know how much, like, it's not super glam. Yeah. On the on the other side, it's exciting and exhilarating. Their adventures and camaraderie, but there's a lot of, you know, just work in it. Um, but I have to say, being one man band was so hard, but so rewarding because the thing about local news that you don't necessarily appreciate at the time is people. You have this intimate connection with families. People invite you are a big deal to those communities. You're in their rooms. Yes. You're in their house. And they open their door, let you into their house, and tell you their lives, their life story, and that is so riveting. And when you're a political reporter in Washington, which was my goal, and I was exhilarated and glad, you know, I had the opportunity to do it, it's much more distant from real people's lives. So what what Orlando reminded me is I just always thought of the the, the people who are watching. It gave me this on-the-ground connection to who I think our viewers are. And so you do Orlando and a bunch of other small markets and then get to Washington. How do you—everyone wants to break into Washington or New York, right? I'll I mean, you- everyone you're working with— Unless they've decided they no longer want to pursue that, right? There's lots of Jessica Yellens out there hoping to get from bigger market to bigger market to bigger market and then eventually Washington or New York. I did it. My short story is I always said I wanted to be White House reporter. So I'd get to Orlando and they said, what do you want? And it's like, I want to be White House reporter. Uh And they'd be like, uh you know, you're in Orlando. And then I got to Tampa and I said the same thing and they let me cover politics. And I covered um, Bill Nelson's first Senate run in the year 2000. So I happened to be in Democratic Party headquarters in Tallahassee in the year Uh 2000. And I was the reporter on the recount um, from the night it happened for 35 days. And I ended up doing the affiliate services and all of it. And it gave me great, serious political tape. But it also gave me the confidence because I was next to all my political reporting heroes. You know, Linda Douglas shows up, Cokie Roberts, like, oh, my god! All the D.C. press corps parachuted in and you're now shoulder to shoulder with them. Exactly. And— 
I was good at it, and I realized I can do this, and that helped. Uh, and then from there, I got an opportunity to do the overnights at MSNBC. was my big leap. And then I got the opportunity— And that back—I mean, now MSNBC is a thing, but back then it was a barely a thing. It was yeah, it was not as dominant as it is now. It was it was a, this weird MS Microsoft NBC yes, joint but venture. And, it was yeah. national news out yeah. of New York. I Still was psyched. Yeah, yeah, it was the big jump for me. And then from there, I got to do the overnights for ABC News because they needed somebody Friday overnight and Saturday overnight. And I and overnight sh- literally means you're in the middle of the night. You show up at work at ten. And you, we practiced drills all night long because it was in case the Pope died or in uh-huh. case something terrible happened, a plane crash. They needed somebody ready to go live. And we drilled. Break glass, I can go on Exactly. Um, at MSNBC, I was on air overnight talking, you know, uh-huh. because things are always happening there. But at ABC, it was only as needed. And then, so I worked Friday and Saturday overnights. And then during the week, I filed for Good Morning America. And I was doing tabloid news stories, you know, any crazy crime across the country. I covered Martha Stewart going to jail, Michael Jackson's second trial. But again, I always said I'd like to be White House correspondent. And it's one thing to say that. And then how do you actually get that job at CNN? I think it's because I wouldn't stop talking about it. So whenever they asked, what do you want to do, Jessica? I'd say, thank you so much for the assignment. And I'd work my tail off to do whatever tabloid crime they told me. And then I'd say, but I'd like to be White House correspondent. So finally, Kate Snow was at the White House, Uh and she got promoted to Weekend Good Morning America, had to leave D.C., and they had an urgent need to fill that slot. And I basically got a call that said more or less, Jessica, don't get excited. We just want you to go to D.C. to fill in for a minute at the White House. Which is what you referenced in the book, too. (laughs) So even though you imagined that you would have to climb over all these bodies to get this job, they're like, look, we need someone. You're around. Just Take go. it for now. Yeah. And then I was there and I just did what I could. You know, I worked as hard as I could. And finally, you know, two weeks turned into a month, turned into five months. And finally, they're like, okay, you can stay. So you've been in the White House, not at the highest levels of power, but you were around and you got a sense of how it worked. And now you're in the White House reporting yeah. on that. So what what sort of what sort of didn't you get about that job? And what did you know? Oh, I know how this works. I know how to do this. Well, it's a very different thing, obviously, covering the White House uh-huh. and working on it. But I in it, um, one of the things I write about in the book is how different it is in person, the press room, than it is when you're seeing it on TV. It just looks so intimidating and formal on TV. And in person, it's tiny and dirty and it smells so bad. I know they've renovated it and it's better, but I mean, there were people who were fire hazards. Like their booths were filled with papers to the ceiling. There's like five people in a tiny, tiny booth. Everybody can see what they're typing. It's super not glam. But there's a real camaraderie among the press corps because you're all in this weird circumstance together. It's a very unnatural thing where you're you're all desperately competing against each other. You're all, but you're all sort of in it together. And then again, this is pre-Trump. Right. So when when Trump came into office, there was a lot of discussion. What would happen to the White House press pool? Would they have to go to a different building? Would they no longer have access? There's a lot of questions about access. Um, and it all became moot because the White House leaks like a sieve and right. Trump can't get away from a TV camera. But did you, having been on that side where you knew sort of the mechanics of how that, all that stuff worked, do you think that Trump aside, that the traditional structure of having all that press jammed in a room, having a spokesperson come out once a day and sort of provide a message and then maybe you hear from another official, do you think that's a useful role for the press, having done that now for years? It's, I think it's unavoidable now that it's become part of the 
language of White House coverage. Because for a while, they said, you know, this was not a standard thing that you would have a live White right. House briefing. Right. Pre-Lewinsky, it wasn't. And then they started it. And then once you started it, how do you stop it? I So my view on this, I was always super conflicted because the briefing feels like kabuki theater half the time. And I, and that's the opening scene in the book. Right, the spokesperson's performing, but the, 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 the press is performing 100%. before the camera. Everybody knows they're on camera. And the truth is, most of what you get that's really good is off camera. Right. But sometimes you need the White House to be on the record, and you need to be able to ask them a question. And even if they're not going to answer it, the people need to see that they're not answering it. And so where else can you have that guaranteed? The White House briefing serves that, fills that function. At least we got to ask the question, and at least we were able to record you not answering it or lying or whatever you're going to do. Right. And it's insufficient to end your reporting there, but it's necessary at this stage to at least have that opportunity. And I think the fact that the Trump White House rarely briefs is awful, but it's, you know, of a piece with their entire approach to the Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like they've taken to the logical extreme, which is we may brief, we may not, but it doesn't matter what we say because nothing we say matters. We're either actively lying or we don't know what we're talking about. And to me, it it just means you should just end the whole procedure. It's, It's literally, it's only stagecraft now. It's a dilemma because I think the Trump White House has enlisted the press as a useful opponent. It's world wrestling. And mm-hmm. uh, the president needs an adversary, and he's decided to make it the media. And it's very hard for the media not to take the bait. How do you cover without engaging? And the press briefing is a, is that it's like that dilemma in a, in a nutshell, you know? But It I just seems like a very, like— so the B-roll, right? It's a term for when you just are, you just need footage of a thing so you can stand up in front of it and talk about it. And it just seems like an elaborate way to get B-roll. Like no one is ever going to get information. Maybe you get satisfaction of watching Sarah Sanders stammer through something. Maybe if you're on the other side, you like seeing uh, Jim Acosta get beat up. Um, not literally, right? Uh-huh. But like you're not, you're, you, there's no way you can learn anything. If you're incredibly diligent, you're never going to learn anything from watching one of these things. Right. Pulling back, here's what I'd say. I am glad the briefing still happens every so often. I think they should go. I think they should have a camera on it. I do not think it needs to make air necessarily. It is often noise and just letting them tell their, you know, do do what they do can be incredibly distracting. And so I think it's an important record, but it should be de-emphasized. So walk me through what happens when you're not involved in the briefing, but you are the White House correspondent. What is a day like there? Oh, well, you you swipe in like a regular, you swipe in where the white West Wing workers swipe in. You go to your tiny little booth, um, and you start making calls and doing emails all day long. Calls and emails, just back and forth, figuring out what's the story. Constant stream of somebody else has this. Do we have that? Can we match it? What do you have? Or have you tweeted? Is it posted? Is it? I mean, it's just rolling, incoming, and trying to keep up. And you were there sort of in a Twitter era. Twitter hadn't broken in the way it, it has now, but it was still a thing there. There was online was part of your, your you had to oh, be yeah. aware of what was going online. Every, you know, I covered Clinton where they barely had email. And then I, I mean, I worked in the Clinton mm-hmm. where barely email, covered Bush where they leaked a little bit differently because they could have a conversation with you and it wouldn't get out on social media. Right. And then by the time Obama was president, they knew the minute they talked to you, it could be blasted out on social. So they're much more circumspect. Um, and Twitter was a big thing then. Um, sometimes the White House comms shop would announce information only on Twitter. And you'd think, you know, like I was literally just on the phone with yeah. you. You couldn't tell me. You had to tweet it. So Twitter was a huge piece of the conversation then. And, you know, so you have to keep your eye on that while having your own personal conversations around town. 
And then the, the work product, right? I mean, so that sounds familiar to a lot of people like me who do some kind of journalism. Um, but then the difference is, right, it, the way I imagine it is for you, unless you're going to stand up in front of a camera and discuss it, it kind of doesn't matter. In theory, you could get a scoop. But the, 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 the lingua franca, right, is, is airtime. Well, so I write you've got about to find this. a story that, that has to put you in front of a camera. Yes, and I write about this in the book about our, the main character, Natalie Savage, has a scoop. And she's trying to get the White House gig. And um, she's doing what she can to get noticed and land it. And she goes to tell her bureau chief what the scoop is. And the bureau chief says, okay, run to a camera, get in front of it. And as soon as she sits down to report it, it comes out of her competitor's mouth. And so, yes, you have to get on air with your information, and there's all sorts of obstacles right. to you getting on air. Right, because it's uh, unlike a world where I can tweet whatever I want. There's only there's there's a specific amount of time and space available for you to get on in front of a camera. Well, I have to say, when it's a 24-hour cable channel, you have a lot more opportunity. To right, get on, get, get, get but even then, their their natural bias is we'd rather have people talking about the thing that someone else wrote about six hours ago, and we can have right. a conversation well, this about is a thing. it. The thing is. Um, and this is true. I've talked to print friends. This is across the news landscape. It is crazy that you're under all this pressure to break news and get an exclusive. But sometimes you get a nugget. You break something that you have. And it might be the case that your organization doesn't want you to report it first because they're like, well, who else is reporting this? Mm -hmm. You're like, no one because I've got it. Let me go. We'll own it. And they're like, well, how do we know it's true if no one else has it? There's that part about being out on a limb. Right. And, and then the other part is just, it's you know, this can get very depressing, but but uh, in some ways we're, the economic model works much better if we don't have people going out and chasing scoops and we oh. have people talking about someone else's scoops. It's a much more efficient model for us. Right. That's a different, yes. The conversation about punditry is yeah. an important one. And I do think that it's a crazy situation we're in. Some of these news organizations have this magnificent ability to go out and cover what's happening on the ground. And instead, they're spending all this time in studio having a bunch of people yell at each other. And I think it is a problem because it's fomenting outrage. And I think people are going to end up with outrage fatigue if we're not already there. That's, I think, I think we're, we're there. there. I, don't. I think I mean, the flip side of this is people like to be entertained. And the reason that you see this model working in political coverage, but also when you watch ESPN and lots of other things now, is that people like to watch and talk radio. People like that kind of engagement. It's more interesting than a dry recitation of the facts. Um, and, to, and to have a pro and a con, even if there really aren't two sides, is sort of a natural way. It's, it's theater, right? People like that. Can I add to that? So I think that that is the conventional, that is how we view the news now. News is conflict. It, stories have to be told as conflict. Uh, make it like ESPN. I was told explicitly to make the news like ESPN. And, to, and they don't mean highlight reels. They mean have a take that is different than someone else's take. I think they mean combat, yeah. uh, competition, jargon, outrage, make it a shout fest, you know, make it explosive. And I have two comments on that. One is um, you still need the explainer part. In order for people to truly engage and understand, we need a setup that says, here's two minutes on what is the border policy. Now you can fight about it. Right. And too often, you don't have that. Second, I would disagree that the whole audience wants it told that way. There is a healthy audience for conflict news. They're watching. But I think there's another audience that wants news told differently. Right, you can't measure them because they're not there. Right. But if you gave them something else, they'd show up for it. And I've done the survey data. I have the survey data to 
you know, indicate yeah. that that audience exists. And I have an Instagram story to show that there are at least some people who want it told differently. And, and you think there's a gender component of this, right? Both in terms of the audience and also who's making the decisions about what kind of news we're going to get. I do. Well, first, the, the research shows that when women are involved in a big way in running newsrooms, the news that comes out is different. It's told differently. It's um, You could have a story on politics, but instead of having it focus entirely on rhetoric and who's up and who's down and polls, um, it's a, more about how does this impact one person in Ohio? Um, what does this mean to you at home? It's it's brought to a human level in a different way, and there's more of a positive solutions-focused framing. And as it turns out, that attracts a larger female audience to news. You would think, if that is the case, that at least one organization would say, one, everyone's doing one thing, so let's go the other way. There's more room. And also, we would love to have a bigger female audience. We would also love to bring in a whole new audience that isn't already watching news because so we don't have to fight for them. Let's go do it. By the way, not out of the goodness of our hearts— pure profit motive. We want that is an that is a, an attractive audience. We want to serve them. Let's go do it. So why hasn't one of the networks leaned into this? You'd think. I mean, it describes an industry ripe for disruption where everybody thinks there's one way to do it. And I think I'm the person. I'm trying to You're do that. You're going to do it. All right. That's what I want to do. I think there's another way and I think it's not just a business, but it's a mission because I don't think anybody would disagree that there's a healthy need for our citizenry to be informed. <laughs> Um, and it's important that we're focused on that. Speaking of focus, this, this is why we're here. The book, I'm holding it up, Savage News, a novel by former CNN chief White House correspondent <laughs> Jessica Yellen. That's you with the Amy Schumer blurb on the front. Isn't Very that good. cool? Oh, my God. I got to say, I, I, as they asked if you wanted if, if, if someone said, should, should you have Jessica on? I said, sure, and took a look at the book. I just assumed that if you were writing a book about the White House in 2019, being published in 2019, it was a story about Trump. I knew it was fictional, but I still assume this is a Trump story. It's not at all. Mm-mm. I say it's— There's some uh, Trumpish elements, but it really is not a Trump story. It's got a missing first lady, a reality TV star— Sex, palace intrigue, and workplace drama, and it's not a Trump administration tell-all. No. Uh. It took me a few minutes to figure that out. (laughs) Uh, It's really about what it's like to be a woman reporting in a crazy time. What it's like to have your job, your old job. Basically, yeah. Yeah. And it's heightened because it's a satire. But um, I really wanted people—you know, people always ask me when I covered the White House, is it more Veep or uh, House of Cards? And everyone assumes it's House of Cards. And I think Washington is Veep, and I think the news is Veep. It's just sort of—this is what every show about the news misses, is the comedy that goes on behind the scenes. Because people are human beings, and they screw up, and they fart, and they— Say the wrong thing on air. Exactly. And and it's just the and then you have to make sure that, you know, it doesn't blow back at you yeah. and then the things you do to make sure of that and you know, the personalities. So I wanted to add a comic element to people's view of the It's a news. screwball comedy. It's screwball. And then also give people slight empathy for the reporters. One of the things that I always thought was strange is I would get this incoming barrage of rage from viewers about why we were making certain programming choices. And you're like, I'm a reporter out in the field doing my best. I don't decide programming. There's n- And so people don't really understand the kinds of pressures that are on you as the reporter, like the focus on your hair mm-hmm. or— um, But you knew what you were getting into. Oh, uh, no. Really? I had no idea really? how important my hair would be to really? White House coverage. 
Oh, my God. You went to Harvard. You were in the White House. (laughs) Here I am thinking, like, oh, I'm going to make a difference. And then— They don't generally put unattractive people on TV. Okay, Peter, there's a difference between being attractive slash presentable and being sort of, like, autocratic about what your hair must look like. And You've got a reference. I don't in the in the book or in one of the articles I was reading where you're talking about like your hair being like misaligned by an eighth of an inch yeah. and getting getting notes about it. Yeah. Like the, so the character does her first White House appearance and the boss calls her in enraged and she thinks she's gonna get yelled at for the question she asked, and the boss is like, Your hair appears to be longer on one side than on the other. Yeah. And then gives her a you know, named to go get a $600 chemical treatment so her hair is straight. And this is a gendered thing, right? Because the men need to be attractive as well, but it's a different standard and a different focus. A hundred thousand percent. I mean, the women, if you'll notice, if you watch somebody who you think is new on a network and you watch them over six months, how their look changes, it's remarkable. And it's, you know, they'll go from often having curly hair. You'll see somebody appear with curly hair and then it's wavy and then it's sort of got body and then it sticks straight in no time and that's the look. And you move from having black and navy suits to having like these colorful jewel tones. There's just like these rules of TV look for females. Um, and they're much more rigid. They're essential. And sometimes nobody orders it. You just understand that that's sort of what we're going to do I need to get now. to the next level uh-huh. or stay on the air. Yeah. Uh, when did when did that sort of click into place for you? How long? I mean, if, I mean you get to TV, so you get a, a big dose of you need to look this way, and then apparently it ratchets up throughout throughout your jobs. At what point did it really sink in? Oh, this is really a big component of my job, and I do or don't feel comfortable with that. Well, it became clear when you start getting notes. Yeah. And, you know, you think you've, like, tried—you know, I'm there trying to do—make sure there's nothing wrong in my story, and I have the most up-to-the-minute information. And and then your feedback is, why were you wearing that jacket? <laughs> never, I never want to see a hat again. You know, all that sort of stuff. Or I remember being in Hurricanes, and they're like, you know, you weren't wearing the logo hat at, at an early station. So it's just—it's part of the job. It's a visual medium. But it is much—I think it's— much harder for women. Yeah. There's even the part where you have to wake up and go to makeup two hours before your live shot so that you can have the full war paint put on with the fake eyelashes and then head to the White House. So it's part of the deal. So, and back to the book. So the book explains some of that if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're unaware of that. And again, there, there, there is not really a lot of Trumpy stuff in part because you wrote the book pre-Trump. I started it pre-Trump. And I also wanted to tell a story that was about news and not about him. Yeah. And I felt like there's nothing you can do. If you try to out Trump Trump or write a crazy, you can't. So there's a- It's interesting that there has not been a lot of Trump fiction. What are you going to do? I mean, even TV writers talk about this in LA. How how do you make it more? Yeah. So I tried to like sort of put the president, there's a president in the background and there's a first lady who's not from America and she goes missing. And so there's some components and there's a White House that leads them on a wild goose chase. There's some things that all resonate, but I really wanted to keep the focus on a young reporter trying to break through. And and, uh, again, you wrote this pre-Weinstein. So I started it, first of all, I'm just going to confess. I think I, I can't even remember. I think I started in 2014. It took me so long. It's really hard. It seems like it'd be difficult to write a book. I know. You know, the thing, nobody's patient with process. So you say, I'm tell friends I'm writing a book, and two months later, they're like, when's it coming out? Why is book? it not out yeah. yet? So I started it pre all of this and then finished it after. But yes, so 
I wrote some, I call it light Me Too, pre-Weinstein, and all my early readers told me to take it out. No one wants to hear that. Some said it's not plausible. And then post-Weinstein, I got a flood of calls saying, put it back in, put Mm -hmm. it back in. And so you went and did it. Yeah, and my goal was to show a different kind of Me Too, not the kind of stuff where there's um, aggressive assault, the sort of thing you have to report or everybody understands, but the kind of icky, vague, upsetting stuff that happens at work for women in any workplace, I think, that you don't always know what to do about it, but it creates an undertow that makes your job harder. And I'd like to be able to have a conversation about that stuff and how do we talk about that? Yeah, I, I still, and let's go back to Kavanaugh, right? It's it's because everything is is often so zero to 100, right? And it's hard to sort of figure out middle ground. Um, I think your age and experience also affects how you view this stuff. Um, I'm measuring my words as I'm saying this because I don't want to get in I trouble. Know. But it, 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 there's lots of gray areas, right? And I think people who acknowledge that are doing us a service by saying there's stuff that can be gross but not illegal right. and bad but not fireable. Exactly. There's this guy I call Hansi Hal, and he helps decide everybody's assignments, so he's super important in your life as a reporter. But he's constantly doing inappropriate things, and you can't upset—our character can't upset him because she doesn't want to lose her assignments. But he's showing up at her apartment at midnight saying, let's get a drink. And he's complimenting her on the way her behind looks and pants. And it's just like, dude, stop doing that. We need to find a way to be able to say that without— maybe reporting them to HR or being able to have them sent to HR and just explained that's not cool. Don't, here, we'll make some really bright lines for you. You stay in this box and don't do that. You get to keep your job. Right. And I'd like us to be able to talk about that without these like apocalyptic outcomes for everybody. Does that stuff, when you're talking to people who've read the book, does that resonate with readers who have different, from different industries or they, they go, no, no, I didn't realize TV was like that, but my job's not like that. Yes, I've gotten all of the above. I've gotten, oh my God, I is this, I know who that is. They think they know because yeah. they've had one. I've had younger women saying, um, I don't know why he should be turned in. They have a very different point of view, like less less accommodating. And then I've had people— Younger women are less accommodating. Yes. Yeah, I've found that to be the case. And I respect that. You know, I, Amy Schumer has this Netflix special out, and she does this shtick bit. I'm told it's called a bit, not a shtick. Sorry. Okay. okay, she has this bit in it where she says, we're all, you know, going along our business, and this younger generation of women comes along and says, hey, are you guys getting harassed? And the older generation is like, um, yeah. And the younger generation says, um, do you want to do something about it? And our generation's like, uh, okay, yeah, sure. So we are learning from what younger women just won't put up with. Mm-hmm. But in my age group, it was so different. It was so different. And um, Or you say, yeah, that's part of life, and you do put up with that, and it sucks, but that's not sexual assault. That's a bad date, something I've heard. Right, yes. And the, but the willingness to actually speak it right. is what I'd like to us to be able to—so that you feel less stifled. So when the icky, creepy thing happens, instead of stifling your response, you can say, hey, I don't like that. Can we not? And that's all. I forgot to mention, you. you, you uh, I was reading your Atlantic piece about Brett Kavanaugh at the end. You say, I went to school with Brett Kavanaugh. I um, I covered Brett Kavanaugh when I worked oh, in the Bush White House. So Bad I reporting. knew him. You knew him professionally. Professionally and a little bit. Have you spoken with him since? No. I have not. Yeah. You had a very, it's a very good piece you wrote last fall. I mean, you were critiquing Fox News' interview of him, which seems like a low-hanging fruit because, of course, Fox News did a crummy job. But they have actual journalists there, and they were attempting to ask questions. And actually, I think your point was 
lots of lots of places would have done a bad job like this because we don't really know how to talk to anyone about these topics. And then the, certainly for politicians and anyone who's who's been trained to give a certain kind of answer, we just allow them to give that answer and then we move on. Yeah, exactly. And we have this weird dichotomy where it used to be that women were entirely stifled. I couldn't even say that creeps me out. Please don't. And now I find a lot of men of goodwill and in high integrity feel stifled because they're afraid to communicate and get in trouble for saying the wrong thing. And you know what? I said earlier, we have not a lot of patience for process. I think we're in process of figuring out this cultural conversation. Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't have the answers of how to communicate, but we're going through this ugly period. And what's important is that we just start talking about it. Yeah, and not not to be too, I believe the children are our future, but I do think, <laughs> you know, a generation from now, a lot of this is just going to seem like a ridiculous fight that we had, and everyone's sort of going to be on board with at least some commonly accepted sort of parameters, and it's going to be fine. Well, I actually find younger men at work get it more. They get it better. They yeah. just came of age in a different time. Yeah, unless we think there's going to be a pendulum swing and you're going to see a reaction to this. Well, one thing we've all learned lately is don't make predictions about the future. I will not make a prediction. <laughs> I have one last question about the book. There's a scene in there where you, uh, not you, your protagonist Thank is you. trying to chase the first lady to the to the French Riviera, except you, you, the network doesn't want to pay for it. So you go to Florida <laughs> to some crummy hotel and set up a shot on a beach and either say or then imply that you're in the Mediterranean. Is that a real story? No. It's a sin of omission. She never says it. She doesn't even apply apply it. It just is a good look. What that is, is a little bit of a pointing out how we craft things in the news, too. I, I remember when I covered the Bush White House, and we would go to Crawford, and we had this— The ranch. The ranch. And in Texas— He would do his brush clearing and bike riding. Yes, we would never see that. It was a camera was sent there. We were miles away at a gymnasium in some local high school. And in the field next to the high school, there was some old broken down wagon and bales of hay set up. And that is where every network did its live shot. And you were in Texas. You were near Crawford. And you were on the ranch, but it suggested that you were near the ranch. We were ranch ranch proximate. (laughs) And, you know, I, I remember— So that kind of shading is standard. Yes, and it's just comical to me, and it's part of the game and the show of it. You know, it's it's just an oddity of doing the job. I also remember part of that scene is because we always also try to hide from weather. The number one rule of a great camera crew is they can find you cover so that if it starts raining or snowing, the shot looks like you're outdoors, but you might be have an awning over you. Mm-hmm. And my greatest crew ever was when we were, I think we were like in Iowa or Ohio during an election. It was crazy blizzard out, and they found us a ground floor room at some Hampton Inn or something, and they removed the windows, the glass from the windows, so that we were physically inside a hotel room, but the shot was to the outdoors. Because you want the outdoors. You want to see that you're out in the, in the snow or whatever, but you can't actually put on a performance. There. Well, you can, yeah. and often you have to stand in a blizzard. Right. But it's way better if you don't have to. And so the idea that we got to have cover but but have the shot look great like that was heaven. And so that was homage to that crew that um, found us that amazing live that shot was location. Great. I also <laughs> like the other convention of TV news where you have to go to the scene of where something happened 
12 or 24 hours earlier and stand up there to prove that you're at the place where the thing happened, but it no longer doesn't matter that you're in front of the school. It was so, I mean, we used to do that for election nights and, you know, we'd have a primary night or election event and I'd literally be in some spot 12 hours after candidate Obama had left. And all you hear is the clinking of the, uh, what do you call them, bleachers being broken down and crews and it's empty and you're still standing there doing your live shot. Do you think any of that changes over the next few years as Jessica Yellens of the world are, are creating their own Instagram and, and, and there's a new vocabulary for what we expect to sort of see come through our phone screen and some of this stuff gets shunted aside because it's either too expensive or just dumb? I do. I think the fact that people are watching just me talking to a camera shows they don't need all that production. Um, I think people want to see real events happening. Yeah. And so it's still crucial that we get out of the building more and show real America and the real world. But when it comes to doing the reporter piece and the live shot, you don't need to— yeah. make all that stuff happen. I will say, like, I, I uh, so Vice is doing this HBO show, yeah. and one of the big things is we don't have an anchor with a news desk. Mm-hmm. We've gotten rid of that, and we're just going to show you shots of people doing stuff. And I find, because I'm old at least, maybe maybe because I'm old, the lack of having that anchor there, even though that's all pretense and silliness, of not having a person at a desk who you just cut to and say, that was that story, here's another story, unsettles me. So I get some of these traditions exist for a reason or have existed for a reason. I agree. And I think you want somebody, the storyteller, somebody leading you on the path. You know, it's the modern Walter Cronkite. And it's about having individuals you can trust. I just think that maybe in the future, people might follow individual reporters as opposed to brands. And the advice I always give audiences when they say, I don't know who to trust. There's too much coming at me. I say, find a couple reporters you respect follow them, and follow the people and sources they refer you to. Go follow Jessica on Instagram. She's easy to find. Go buy Jessica's book, Savage News. Jessica, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. It's really great to be here with you. Thanks for coming. Thanks to you guys for listening. We love that you listen. We love all feedback, especially the positive feedback, but it'll take any feedback. Um, If you've got really positive feedback, leave it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's easy to leave a review there and it helps us out. So thank you in advance. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show. Thanks to Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson, who produce it. Should I thank anyone else? No, no, I'll thank you guys one more time for listening. I really like doing these things and I like that you listen. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week.